Amen. This morning we will continue continue our series, The State of the Church. This is the final message in that series. And this morning we want to look at the fact that the state of the church depends on Jesus. The state of the church depends on Jesus. Next week we will have a message dealing with uh, the sanctity of human life. And the week after that, we will have a guest speaker. Uh, Pat Pajak will be here to share with us. And then that evening, we'll have an evangelism training uh, time. So I just want to encourage you uh, to be here for those as well. But this morning, we want to talk about the state of the church and how it depends on Jesus. We've been looking through our mission statement. We've uh, uh, gone over our mission statement. We say it every week. FBC exists to glorify Jesus Christ by calling people to know him, grow in him, and to show him to others. The challenge is, how do we take that mission statement and make it a reality? And so we have to ask, how is it that we can make this mission statement to the, how, how can we take that and make it so we see that it actually happens? Further, we should be asking, um, what will it take to make that mission real in our lives, and what will it take to make the mission real in this church? And so for the answer, we have to go to Scripture. John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14 tell us this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So how can we see the mission happen? Well, we have to ask in Jesus' name, which really reveals to us that the mission depends on Jesus. And what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? Well, ultimately, ultimately, it means that we are asking in the character and with the approval of Jesus Christ. So we are asking for the very things that Jesus would ask for. And so then we ask ourselves, well, what is it that Jesus would ask for? And if we answer that question, then we know that we should also ask for those things. Again, we have scripture to guide us. So let's look this morning at several things we know meet this criteria of what Jesus would ask for in his life. So first, we want to make sure that we ask for workers, that we ask for workers. Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So Jesus describes this crowd. They're harassed and helpless. We talked about this a little bit last week. But Jesus is having divine compassion on a troubled people. Please understand that compassion is identifying with the situation of others that one is prepared to act for their benefit. So to have compassion, I see someone in a situation, and then I am prepared to act on their benefit. 
That's compassion. When it says they were, they were harassed, what it means is that they were weighted down with life. They are dejected. They were wounded and they were helpless. They were sheep with nowhere to turn. They are defenseless. And sheep without a shepherd are very vulnerable. This is a reference to their spiritual condition because they lacked true leaders and teachers to instruct them in the way of salvation. You see, the Jewish leaders and teachers were learned people in the traditions, but they were ignorant in the way of salvation as revealed in the scriptures. So the flock of God was not just weighed down with life. They were weighed down with worthless religion and they were following all of the rules but getting no satisfaction. Sin also weighed them down. You see, they did not know the truth that could set them free. They just had these ideas of religion. And so they're still dead in their sin. And so when it says that they were harassed, it means they were literally harassed. Everything about them was like this huge weight that they could no longer carry. They were helpless. They had nowhere to turn. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep are not very bright animals. And without guidance, sheep have significant problems. They go wherever they want. In fact, sheep can't even forage on their own. They need a shepherd to guide them to the proper place to forage. And Jesus says they are like sheep without a shepherd. They're just wandering around. They're facing great danger. They don't have the resources to escape their situation. So he's looking at this crowd. He said, these are like a bunch of of sheep. They're just wandering around without a shepherd, right? And then he turns to his disciples and he says about this crowd, looking at the crowd, The harvest, the harvest, all these sheep with no shepherd, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The problem is the number of workers. The problem isn't the harvest, it's the workers. And sadly today, the problem doesn't seem to be so much the number of workers, because if we look in churches, supposedly we have a lot of workers. The problem is the workers don't show up. Right? There's multitudes ready to be reaped into the kingdom, but so few are willing to take the gospel to those people. Do you believe Jesus or not? Because Jesus said hear that the fields are white with harvest. He says, hey, people are ready to be harvested and every time that we refuse to share the gospel, we are making Jesus Christ out to be a liar, saying he did not know what he was really talking about when he said the fields are white for harvest. So let me ask you something. Have you ever seen someone that just refuses to show up for work? They just say, I'm not going to work. 
That's the illustration that Jesus gives, that the fields are ready to be harvested. But to be harvested, workers have to go to work. And so we might ask ourselves, are we ready to work? So that's a question you should be asking yourself, even this morning, am I ready to do the work? Because, listen, church, we're surrounded by men and women, young and old, who are harassed and helpless and bruised and battered by life. They are lost and alone in this world. They're resorting to pleasures or drugs or anything else that they think will make life more tolerable for them or death more acceptable to them. They could be churchgoers or those who are at least look expectantly to the church for help. And all the time, those who should be shepherds are feeding nonsense, false ideas that either lead them astray or tell them they need to not worry about eternity, but nothing to bring them to God and His gift of eternal life. You may say, well, I'm not called to preach. And that may be the case. But you are called to share the gospel. And even if you're not called to preach, you should nevertheless have compassion on the lost millions and show it by pleading for messengers to go with the gospel to people that have never heard it. It's not sufficient simply to lament the lack of new ministers and missionaries coming forward. It's not good enough to say, oh, we we need more missionaries or we need more pastors. We have to pray, our Father in heaven, who is the Lord of the harvest, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Include this urgent request when we pray. We should be praying for the lost. Think about it. Think about the number of Christians in Washington, Illinois, and around the world. If they were all to work, if they were all to work at harvesting, would it be a problem? We need to pray for workers. And they don't even necessarily have to be from First Baptist Church. We need workers to reach our community with the gospel and to reach the world. Ask for workers. Secondly, let's ask for enlightenment. Ask for enlightenment. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now, I have to to be careful here because there is a lot contained right there. I could preach an entire sermon or two, or maybe even three, over that passage of Scripture. There's so much there, but I'll be as brief as I can. It's impossible for us to see everything that's going on around us. Spiritually. We need God to open our eyes so we can see exactly what it is that we have, so we can share it with others. Look what Paul said in verse 17. He asked God 
For the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Listen, Paul is praying that every recent convert would come to know and understand, to come to grasp and realize, to take in and see certain things. Now, the very first need of a new Christian is understanding. And understanding starts in the mind and it extends to your heart. New believers need to see facts and truths of Scripture in such a way that they rejoice in them and that it brings them to the point that these truths become convictions on which they will live and die. Listen, if if you're a new Christian, I would plead with you that in all of your seeking above everything else, seek understanding. And if you are around new converts, or any convert for that matter, I would ask that above everything else, seek to give knowledge. If you're praying for other believers, pray that they would have knowledge. Just pray that. Give them knowledge. Give them spiritual insight. Now, Paul asks explicitly for spiritual insight in three areas. First, the hope to which he has called you. Before our belief in Christ, we have no hope. The universe is not random, and God has not abandoned us. Our God is just, and he's gracious, he is sovereign, and he's saving, and he is our hope. We have the hope of heaven, and we need to ask God for enlightenment, that our eyes would be fixed on heaven. We live in a pleasure-seeking, pleasure-loving age that says all that matters is the heart in the here and now. But God's word speaks in, speaks differently than that. We can enjoy things of the present. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's also suffering to bear and a cross to carry. There are far better things ahead than what's just on this earth, if you're a believer. There are things far greater than this life. So we must fix our eyes on our hope. That's the point. Paul is praying that we will see our final destination. Look around. We live in an awful world where awful things take place. But as Christians, we can we can become incredibly discouraged. And we cry and we say Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we wonder, how can we keep on going? But if we would just catch a glimpse of our hope in heaven, all of our courage would return. We have no reason of being ashamed, of being different than those that are around us. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death Because we know what's on the other side. Because we're going somewhere far better and somewhere that's eternal. Don't lose sight of heaven. Set your affections on the things above. And in so doing, you can enjoy this present life without being diverted from the great priorities, the greatest of priorities, which is your place above, your place in heaven. Second, Paul talks about the riches of his glorious inheritance. We are viewed as children of God. Now that's... That's incredible. 
And what I believe is, is this verse is speaking that we are God's inheritance. And we are his blessing to himself. This is so incredible because it's saying that we belong to God and that God has made us his own. And that we are his treasured possession which will be redeemed on the final day. God wills us to himself and we are then his treasured possession. I love what F.F. Bruce says about this passage. He says that God should set such high value on a community of sinners. That's us. Rescued from perdition and still bearing too many traces of their former state might well seem incredible were it not made clear that he sees them in Christ. He sees us in Christ. As from the beginning, he chose them in Christ. God's estimate of people of Christ united to him by faith and partakers of his resurrection life is inevitably consistent with his estimate of Christ. Do you get that? God's estimate of you is consistent with his estimate of Christ. Paul prays here that his readers may appreciate the value which God places on them. His plan to accomplish his eternal purpose through them as the first fruits of a reconciled universe of the future, in order that their lives may be in keeping with his high calling, and that they may accept it gratefully in humility, the grace and glory thus lavished on them. Thirdly, Paul speaks of a measurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. We can only face opposition of our faith and meet the needs around us by claiming the power of God, which is available to every single one of us that know Christ. We don't always see it, but God's power is ever-present. And so Paul's prayer is that this church at Ephesus would be made receptive by the Spirit so that they can then face their earthly problems with divine power. Think about all the needs we're surrounded with. Often we don't even see him. And we need to just stop and ask God to open our eyes so that we might see them. And so that we might be able to minister to those around us. So that we could bring them into saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That, that can only happen by God's power. So, so we should be stopping and saying, Lord, open my eyes. I will see the needs around me. Jesus even had to open the eyes of his disciples so that they could understand. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, he said, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It would do us great good to pray the words to that song, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. God's divine power offers to us hope. Because of his power, there is hope for our fallen condition, for our own sin-sick world, and our own sin-bound souls and it is all because of the power of Christ that is for us and not against us. Therefore, we are also called to be dispensers of hope. We are to offer hope to people so that they would know that even in the midst of their darkest days, Jesus offers a brighter tomorrow. You see, our focus is not on the, the power, but the person that the power comes from, which is Jesus Christ. We need to pray for workers, and we need to pray for enlightenment. And thirdly, we need to ask for the lost to be saved. Ask for the lost to be saved. 
Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Here, we find Paul praying specifically for the Israelites. It is his desire, his hope, his dream that they would come to know Christ. Church, we should have this intense longing for men and women and boys and girls, for people of all sorts to come to know Christ. Here's the thing. Paul knew, and Paul even taught, that there would not be a widespread turning to God by the Jews. He knew that. But he didn't let that govern his affections. He still had the longing that they would come to be saved. We have to be a people of prayer for the salvation of of others. And if we're truly honest, if we truly search our heart, we we would be forced to ask ourselves, how often do we pray for things that we want? Right? We pray for that raise or for someone's sickness to go away or any number of things. How often is our prayer time filled with praying for for health concerns of people? And how often in those times of prayer do we pray things like, Lord, bless so-and-so. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with praying for these things. But when do we pray for the lost? What do you pray for the lost? Is that your first thought? When will we come into church and as we're adding people to our prayer list, say, I I want us to pray for my friend so-and-so because they don't know Christ. Or I want us to pray for my neighbor because they're lost. Or I want to pray for my co-worker because I know that they don't know Jesus. Or I want to pray for that person that I met at Walmart that was checking, checking uh, that was going through the checkout with me. And, and I want to pray for them because I know that they don't know Christ as their Savior. Or whoever it might be, I want, to, I want to pray for the lost. Church, listen, the lost are dying and going to hell. The saved are dying and going to heaven. Right? And so, I, I'm not saying don't pray for people that are sick. Go ahead and pray for people that are sick. But when they die, it's glory. When the lost die, it's hell. There's a vast difference. When will we come into church and as we're, we're adding people, just add those people that we know are lost? When will we come to the altar and weep for the lost in our community? When will we pray for others to be saved? I wonder what would happen if we became people that prayed for the salvation and our first thought was, hey, I need to pray for someone to come to know Christ as their Savior. When we hear of someone that's near death, when is that going to be our first thought? I wonder if they know Jesus. Not, oh, I better pray that they get better. Or when somebody's going through a difficult time, when is our first thought going to be, I wonder if they know Jesus. We should genuinely desire the salvation of all people. 
We should be praying for the lost. Our prayer time should be filled with prayers for the lost. I have this theory. The reason we don't pray for the lost is because we don't know any. And the reason we don't know any is because we don't engage people in conversation outside of our circle. And the reason we don't engage people in conversation outside of our circle is, well, we just don't want to, and we just don't care enough. If you don't know people that are lost, find some. And start praying for them. And start praying that you will have an inroads with, for the gospel. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've prayed for my neighbor. I've prayed for my landlords. I've prayed for my own children because I know they're lost. That's what we should be doing. That they would come to know Christ as their Savior and taking every opportunity to share the gospel. When will we pray for the lost? So we need to pray for workers. We need to pray for enlightenment. We need to pray that the lost are going to be saved. We need to pray for unity. Ask for unity. John 17, 20, and 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be one in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is requesting of the Father that they may be one. There is a reason that this is a central theme of Jesus' prayer. Don't miss what Jesus said because he's saying just like he and the Father are united in one in each other, that we are able to be united in the same way. Why? So that the world would believe. And so the world will see genuine love among believers, unity among believers, and become believers. That's our goal. The idea is, is that this display of unity is so compelling, so unworldly, that their witness as to who Jesus is becomes explainable only if Jesus truly is the Savior whom the Father has sent. Well, how do we achieve this? Let me be clear. The first step towards unity is defining it biblically. And it's not done by finding the lowest theological common denominator and calling it good, but by submitting to the gospel and by loving one another sacrificially and by having undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission that we're called to be on. Here's the thing. Unity is truly mystical. How else could we be one like the Father in Christ are one? It's a mystery because it transcends our understanding. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all unified as one. And it is beyond our comprehension. My point is this. It can only happen in the church. This kind of unity can only happen in the church with people that know Christ as their Savior. We can see this mystical unity in the church. It is in the church that we become family. That we become uh, family by being born again into the church. When we're born again, we're part of the church of Christ because of our, 
our saving faith, but we also have been adopted into Christ. We have this bond of mutual commitment, affection, and common cause. To be clear, Christian, unity focuses on the truth, and truth is not set aside in order to gain unity. You can't have Christian unity without truth. And so we encourage unity, focus on truth among all true Christians. Let me tell you something, church. When we're divided, it's confusing. And what's more, a divided church will eventually fall. We need to pray for workers. We need to pray for enlightenment. We need to pray that the lost will be saved. We need to pray for unity. Fifthly, we need to pray for boldness. We need to ask for boldness. Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Love this verse. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So let me explain this to you just a little bit. It's Peter and John thrown in jail, and then they're ordered not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And they respond with this, basically, well, you decide whether it's right for us to listen to you, or rather, listen to God. Who should we listen to is basically what they're saying to these people. But we're not going to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. So then, they're threatened, right? So, so then like, oh, well, if that's the case, we're going to threaten you. And they go, they go back to the church. And the church together then prays that they will do what God's hand has predestined to take place. And then we come to verse 29. So Peter and John go back to the church and they have a little prayer meeting and they say, let's pray that we will do the will of God that he's already predestined to take place. Let's pray that we will do it. And then we come to verse 29. And all I can say is, wow, they don't pray. They've been persecuted, thrown in jail, threatened, told you better shut your mouth. That Well, we're not going to do that. We can only speak what we... Then we're going we're, we're gonna to threaten you even stronger. And they don't pray and say, Lord... Stop this persecution. What do they pray for? Make us bold. Make us bold. Help us endure. And this prayer for boldness is answered actually immediately in verse 31. Because it says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And it blows my mind because what would have happened if the church had never prayed this prayer? Imagine Peter and John get thrown into jail. And after being thrown into jail, they decide, well, I'm sick of this. Let's get out of here. But they and the church were changed. Oh, that we would pray for boldness. 
They had the same worries that we have. They had families, just like we have families. They had reason. They could have easily reasoned their way out of it, but they didn't. Instead, they decide that God's will was that they would remain faithful. We need boldness, boldness when sharing the gospel. We need boldness when, when proclaiming his truth. When We need courage to share our testimony. Listen, church, how is, uh, now is the time to pray for boldness and to be bold. Now is not the time to cower away. Now is not the time to leave it up to someone else and say, oh, well, someone else is going to do it. You have the Spirit of God living inside of you. He's living inside of you. What do you think is going to happen when you pray for boldness? You better look out. Because if God's Spirit truly lives in you and you pray for boldness, you think you're going to be bold? We need to pray for workers, pray for enlightenment, that the lost are going to be saved, for unity and for boldness. The next four points all come from this passage of Scripture, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So, six, ask for open doors. Paul is asking the church to pray for him, and look what he specifically asked them to pray for. He asked that God would open a door for the word. Paul, writing from prison, did not say, hey, pray that these prison doors would be open. Instead, he asked for prayer for an open door, asked for prayer with an evangelistic thrust, he asked for prayer that there would be a way made for him to share the gospel. And I think it goes beyond that because look at what it says. It's an open door for the word, which by implication is to say it is the word that must be given entrance into someone's life and the word that transforms lives. And when he's asking for prayer for an open door for the word, he's making it clear that it is God who prepares the way for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Until God changes things, humanity is barred against the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Bunyan was right in his book, The Holy War, when he said that Man is like a city under siege with all the senses like massive gates stubbornly holding the truth at bay. But the Lord opens the heart to the gospel. Just like he did Lydia in Acts chapter 16. He opens the hearts to the gospel today even in the midst of our messed up world. We must hear this when we try to share the gospel. It is if at times when you're sharing the gospel with someone, if you've ever ever done it, there are times it seems like they're like steel shutters up. 
and no entry signs plastered all over them. And that's why we got to pray. That's why we have to pray for open doors. That's why we have to pray for one another that God would use our words as a powerful witness to penetrate the barriers of people's minds. It's not enough just to watch for an opportunity to share Jesus. We need to ask God for the opportunity to share the gospel. It's not enough to, well, I'm just going to look for opportunities. No, ask God for the opportunity. There's an old song titled, Watch and Pray, and maybe we need to pray and watch. Think about it. When someone asks about church or about your joy or a friend is having a particularly hard day, these are open doors. We must notice when God has gone before us, and we must make use of every single opportunity. We have to be alert and see them. We have to discipline our minds and control our thoughts to recognize when God puts an open door right smack dab in front of us. And we must walk through it. We must say, okay, here's the open door. Now I'm going to walk through it. We need to pray for workers, for enlightenment, for the lost to be saved, for unity, for boldness, and for open door seven. We need to ask for clear proclamation. Paul knew that his ability to communicate the gospel clearly would directly impact the reception of the message. He says in verse 4 that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Communication that is not clear or transparent is bad communication. Have you ever tried to communicate something and couldn't do it? Like you're trying to tell someone something and they, they don't get it and you're trying to communicate it but they're not understanding and you get real frustrated because you're, you're trying to tell them and they just not understanding. I've done that. Things just turn out bad when that happens. Or maybe you've had someone try to communicate something to you. And you have no clue what they're talking about. Like when I have somebody communicate to me something real technical, whether it's automotive or, I don't know, electricity, and they're like, yeah, you got to do this and hook this up and run this here. And, and I'll sit there and go, oh, yeah, okay, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. I have no idea what they're talking about. None. And it's just a mess. And the gospel is not meant to be obscure. Nor is it meant to be spoken in some sort of hidden or weird way. But it's meant to be clear, not confusing. And sometimes we get focused on the wrong thing. Or we lose where we are going when it comes to talking about Jesus. And and that can be confusing and muddy the waters. My buddy sent me a a message from someone. Uh, He said, hey, check out this sermon. And I was watching this sermon. I'm a pastor, okay? And I'm watching this sermon, and I'm like, what is this dude talking about? I couldn't follow what they were talking about. And the gospel shouldn't have muddy waters. The gospel is very simple, folks. We don't need to make it hard. Right? We've all sinned. We're in need of a Savior. And Jesus is the Savior. And we have to place our trust in Him. That's pretty simple. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. Jesus is the Savior. You need to trust in Him. That's the gospel. One last thing here. Paul 
also asked for prayer that he would speak as he ought. And I think that's important because Paul is not saying, I have all of the answers. And I always know when to say the right thing. But instead, he's humbly admitting that he needs prayer so that he will say what he should say. Let me just say as your pastor, I need that kind of prayer. I need you to pray for me that I will say what I need to say. But not only that, but, but we should pray for one another that we would one another say what we need to say. So we need to pray for workers, for enlightenment, that the lost will be saved, for unity, for boldness, for open doors, for clear proclamation, and for wise action. Wise action. Whether we like it or not, people are watching us. The way we behave will add credibility or destroy the message of Jesus Christ to our lives. Paul asked for prayer that he would walk in wisdom, specifically towards outsiders. Have you ever been on the outside? It's a sad state of affairs. I'm sure you've felt this before. You know, people are getting together and they're doing their thing, right? And they're leaving you out. Have you ever been there? Maybe they're organizing something right in front of you. And they're, oh yeah, then we're going to, let's go do this and this and this and this. And you're standing there and you're like, boy, I wish they had, I want to go do that. Right? Have you ever been there? You're on the outside, but they're on the inside. You're not the inside. You're the outside. We do this in church sometimes. It's grievous when we're made to feel unwelcome or that you don't belong with that group. But here's the thing. In today's society, often it is the Christian that gets left out because people don't want to be around them. And Paul flips that notion on its head because he says, no, the lost person is the real outsider. They are outside. The only, the, the, the only thing that matters is Jesus Christ. The only society that matters is, is the society of Christians. And They are this way because they exclude themselves. The outside is filled with misery that can't be mended and lost. It can never be retrieved. And the inside is filled with joy and warmth and and acceptance and the love of Jesus Christ. And we want outsiders to be insiders. And that's done by walking in wisdom. We have to stop and think before we act, before we speak, making sure that the things that we are doing and saying are aiding others to come to Christ and not keeping them from Him. And so often as Christians, we say and do things that drive the loss away. I'm not saying that we compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ, but what we do not need to do is be a hindrance to the gospel of Christ either. Let me ask you, what have you done in this past week that could have weakened your witness for Jesus? And what have you done this past week that has strengthened it? The key to effective evangelism is not just about some great technique of communication, though that is beneficial, but it's primarily to work at being a godly person whose character will give credibility to the message. So we need to pray for workers and pray for enlightenment. That the lost will be saved for unity, for boldness, for open doors, for clear proclamation, for wise action. And ninthly, that we would ask for graceful speech. Ask for graceful speech. Believe it or not, some Christians have actually hurt the cause of Christ when sharing Jesus with others. We need to speak with grace and salt 
No one has ever argued or nagged into the kingdom of heaven. Admittedly, salt does sting when applied to a wound. And the point is that there is a place for confrontation and even challenge when we communicate the gospel. We see Paul do this often. But we must keep grace in view. Grace will help us from being too abrasive. And salt will keep us from being too sentimental. Let me say that if we're going to have graceful speech, that means that we must communicate with each other and with those around us in such a way that we would have the opportunity to share our faith. It really means that we would have to look for opportunities to engage in lively interchanges with non-Christians on topics and in a style which would be a positive conversation with those that are involved. It should be a conversation which reflects the character of Christ. We need to have social interaction and involvement in our community affairs. And we should be expected to hold our own as Christians in social settings and to gain the attention of others because of our speech for Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that you're silent. It means that you engage where you're at. You engage your community. You engage your social setting. And you always point to Christ. Our faith should be so integrated into your life, into our life, as we go about our work, and as we move about our day, that our natural conversation would be guided towards faith, and not in some weird or awkward way. I, I know you've probably seen this, where somebody quickly tries to steer the conversation towards Jesus, and it's just like real awkward real quick. You know, they're like, you're just talking normal, and they're like, hey, by the way, you know you're going to hell? You know, that's awkward. That's not what we're saying. Your faith should be so ingrained in who you are that when you're having normal conversation with people, it should directly lead that conversation to faith. Some things you don't just you just don't say, right? When you're sharing the gospel, I know I've, I've shared some of these with you before, but that's one of them. Hey, did you know you're going to hell? That don't. Say that, and you don't lead with that. You're, you don't engage someone in a conversation and say, by the way, I'm a Christian. Did you know you're going to hell? That's probably not good. Or how do you want to spend eternity, smoking or non-smoking? It's not good either. Or you need to turn or you're going to burn. We do need to share the hard truths without being ungraceful. Folks, we can share the truth of God's word and use some grace to do it. So, pray for workers. Pray for enlightenment. Pray the lost will be saved. Pray for unity, boldness, open doors. For clear proclamation, wise actions, and we need graceful speech. So, will you pray? Will you pray for the mission of our church? We've covered a lot of ground over the past four weeks. Started off breaking down our mission of existing to glorify Jesus Christ by calling people to know him, grow in him, and to share him with others. And then we talked about how we need urgency and perseverance to accomplish the mission. In other words, do it now and keep on going. Then last week we talked about seeing things, that they really, how they really are, and knowing what you're inviting people to. It's not just church, but it's a new way of life. And now we talked about how to bathe this in prayer, and that everything that we should be doing should be focused on Jesus Christ through 
prayer. The only thing left to do is, are you with me? Are we really going to do it? Are we really going to do whatever it takes? You know what? You may be here and say, Pastor Josh, that, that sounds good, but I just don't care. And you know what? I'm, I'm fine with that. I don't like it. But I'm fine with it because I've learned I don't change anyone. The Word of God changes them. But let me just say, because I hear people all the time talking about how they went to see, they want to see our church grow, or how we want to see God move in our church. And I'm with you. I want to see those things too. But if we want to see God move in our church, then we have to be people that say, yeah, I'm in. I'm on board. I will do this. I want to be a difference maker. I want to see First Baptist Church fulfill its mission. I want to be a part of the mission. I will do whatever it takes to see it done. And so I just call you into action. I'm not going to ask you to do anything wild or crazy. If you want to come and pray during the invitation, then I would encourage you to do that. If you want me to pray with you, I would encourage you to do that. If you want to walk down here and say, hey, I'm with you, pastor, then I would encourage you to do that. If you want to hang out after the service and and say, pastor, I need to talk with you, I'm with you, then I would encourage you to do that. If you want to write a note and say, I'm with you, I would encourage you to do that. Just make sure your name's on it so I know who wrote me the note. So I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember every single person that says, I'm with you for the mission. I'm going to write your name down. Because I'm going to know that you say, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm going to know that you're serious. That you want First Baptist Church to fulfill the mission. That you will do whatever it takes. If that's you, I'm asking you to respond. I'm asking you to say, I'm with you, Pastor, in some way, shape, or form to let me know. And it's not just a symbol. It means that you're willing to do it. And I'm going to keep your name in front of me. I'm going to pray for you. And when you step out of line of the mission, I'm going to call you on it. And when it comes time to do something, I may call you. So don't have this lighthearted thing like, oh yeah, I'm with you, Pastor. Because if you're not serious, I don't even want to know it. I'd rather, I'd rather nobody say to me, I'm with you, than one person say, I'm with you, and not be with me. So I want you to pray in your heart. And I want you to ask yourself this morning, am I really on board? Do I need to deal with sin in my own life? How's the Lord directing you this morning? Let's pray.